welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. All right, good morning. Good to, uh, good to see each one here today, uh, being with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and we're continuing our, our study there. And this uh, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, I want to read uh, just the first eight verses there in this section. It's really an uh, introductory um, uh, section to the flood and the account of um, Noah. And it gives us a, a look at the, uh, the condition of the world. It's a it's really a view it's God's from God's perspective of what's happening on the earth <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1 when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose then the Lord said, My spirit shall not uh, abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, <clears throat> these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our fathers, we come to this portion of your word this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word that we might uh, not only see and understand what you have for us, but that we'd be able to apply these truths to our own lives, to our own hearts, that uh, we might better live for you in, in the day in which we live. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you come to this passage, it's just filled with questions. <laughs> uh, it seems like the more you study it, the more questions you, you have. But uh, I, I don't want us to get uh, uh, bogged down in to questions so much that we don't see the application. And uh, I think that's a, there's a couple of things here that um, we, we want to take from this passage and uh, get us get us on the, the, <clears throat> the slides here. Uh, two things. One, the corrupting nature of sin in the heart of man. And there we see that sin abounds. And then secondly, even in judgment, God is gracious. And grace abounds even more. And so these are two truths there's, there's other things that uh, we could take from it but i believe if we get these two 
principles in our heart and in our thinking this morning, we will, we will uh, uh, get the uh, two important things that God wants to communicate to us in this section. Well, first of all, the corrupting nature of sin in the heart of man. From the time of creation up until Noah, uh, his, his family is getting ready to uh, go on the ark. <clears throat> the Bible says that uh, according to these genealogies that we were given from the line of Seth, there's about 1,600 years have taken place. And uh, we've seen the unbelieving uh, line from Cain that resulted in the likes of Lamech. This man who was arrogant and vengeful. And then we've also got a glimpse at this line of Seth, a, a believing uh, line, a family of, of descendants that uh, worship God. And so we have these two set over against each other. But by the time we, we get to Noah, and Noah's about, uh, well, the Bible says he's 600 years when the flood started, 600 years old. But by that time, uh, he and his family is the only ones left that are believing. And uh, we, we think about this line of Seth, we, men like uh, Enoch and Noah, who were preachers of, of righteousness. They were not able to impact the world sufficiently to, to turn uh, the world to faith in God or to repent and and turn to God. Instead, what we see is that the unbelievers, the, the wicked of the world, had grown and corrupted the line of uh, descendants of Seth. So that only Moses and his family are believing out of, out of the whole world. Can you imagine being in that situation? I mean, I, our day is bad enough, but if you were the, you and your family, were the only believers in the world, that would be a challenge, wouldn't it? That would uh, challenge your faith to be uh, consistent, to, to not doubt, to not waver. And that's the time that, uh, that Noah was living in. And the remaining believers, other than his family, had all died out, and the others had become corrupted. And as we look back through history, we see this corrupting influence of sin in the world. Uh, it's, it's easy for sin to spread and difficult for righteousness to spread. As you think about the reality of our world. The, yes, there have been times when God has done a special work in the hearts of men, and there's been times of revival, times of awakening, uh, and, and you see a, a movement uh, from people to God of turning their hearts to the Lord in faith and truth. But this world is still a dark place. And as Christians, we are told that we are to be salt and light in the world. And yet it seems like our light is uh, so little in a dark world. It's kind of like our house during load shedding. <laughs> we, we go with our light from one dark room to the other uh, at night. And that's the way it seems that we are in the world. We're, we're, we are light, 
And as we walk with the Lord and, 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 and seek to follow Him, we are light. In the, but it's like we're going from one dark place to the other in the world. And so we see this reality and we could ask the question, why does the corruption of sin spread so easily? And I, I want you to see, first of all, is that uh, part of the reason is the corrupt nature of man's heart. Uh, you know, a, a rotten apple in a basket of other apples that are good will corrupt those apples and the reason being is that it's in the nature of fruit to, to uh, decompose, right? You, know, you, you can't have it the other way around. You can't take a, a good apple and put it in a, bat of, uh, a basket of bad apples and, and hope that the bad apples are going to become good. It's, it's in the nature of fruit to decompose. And it's, it's in the nature of a fallen man or mankind to turn away from God to seek their own way. And the reality is it takes a supernatural work of God in the heart of man to give him a new heart, to bring about the transformation of uh, what, the, what the Bible describes as the new birth. And, and so that's the reality that, that we're, we have in the world. And, it, and it, it explains to us, it helps us to see why sin seems to corrupt so easily in the world instead of the other way around. Notice verse 5 again, the description the Lord gives as he looks. Notice the phrase the Lord saw. And the last time we, we saw that phrase was in, in, in Genesis 1 and 2 where he's talking about his creation and as the Lord looked or God saw what did he say? He said it was good. He said it was very good. And now, 1,600 years later, or 1,500 years later, at this, around about this time when he's speaking to, no, to, to Moses uh, and to, to Noah, he, he says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so what we're seeing here is a description of, of mankind that is totally given over to the lust of the flesh. And we're living in a time now where the world is rushing headlong into the same kind of corruption. And if it were not for the, the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit of God in the church, we would be in the same condition as in the days of Noah before the flood. And in fact, Jesus says in Matthew 24, as he's talking about his second coming in these last days in which we're living, in the, in the Lord, when he comes back, uh, he says there in, in chapter 24 from verse 37, for as, uh, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
and, and what the Lord has described there is, um, it's not that marrying and giving a marriage and, and, and eating and drinking are bad, but what he's saying is that they were totally indifferent to the fact that the Lord was bringing judgment. And in the days of, of, uh, of Noah, they had disregarded the warnings. Noah was warning, uh, and God, through him, was, was warning. He's building the ark. But they're totally indifferent to these warnings. They did not believe that God would actually bring judgment upon them. Well, a second reason that uh, corruption of, of sin spread so easily is the working of Satan. And we see this, this reality. Satan and his demons are always working to, to corrupt men's hearts, to promote wickedness in the world. Uh, I, I believe that what we see described here in verses 1 and 2 in Genesis is this working of Satan and his demons. And uh, regardless of the view you take of, um, of, of what's described in verses 1 and 2, this is a, a reality that Satan is behind the corruption. He's promoting it. He is, he is working to, to keep men in darkness, blinded to the, the truth of God. Let's read again verses 1 and 2. He says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they choose or chose. Well, one of the questions we need to deal with is, who are these sons of God that's being referred to here? And, and there's really two major views. There's other views, but I, I, could, I see two as being prominent among uh, conservative uh, scholars. And the one view is that these sons of God, this, this phrase here, refers to the descendants of Seth. In other words, this, this line that we, we saw in chapter 5 of, uh, of, of children or men that came from Seth, and this was a line that had faith in God. At least some did. And uh, this view is that, uh, that these, these uh, descendants of Seth took wives from the descendants of Cain. In other words, they did not maintain a distinction, uh, being separate from the world, which we're admonished in the New Testament. And... And this view certainly has some good preaching points because uh, it is true that we need to be warned to not uh, just ignore the reality that we're to be separate from the world. And, and the dangers that's involved in, in taking a, a, a mate for a husband or a wife that's unbelieving and the reality that that creates for compromise in your own walk with the Lord and uh, in, in, in allowing the world to impact, impact your life. Uh, so this, this view does have, um, a, 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 I would say it's, it's a simpler interpretation of the sons of God. But the more you study this phrase, the sons of God, in some New Testament passages, you realize 
that does have its limitations. One of the one of the limitations is in verse one and two, in particular there in verse one, where the terminology that's used there, the contrast between the sons of God and the daughters of man. Daughters of man is really daughters of Adam, in other words, mankind. If if Moses had been trying to to, to teach that or, or to point out that you know there's this distinction between the line of Seth and the line of Cain, he, he could have just said that. Um, and, and that would have made the point much better if that was the, the case. There seems to be a, the distinction here, or the contrast between these two seems to be more than just uh, Cain, uh, you know, descendants of Cain and descendants of Seth. He, he seems to refer to something more than that. And so the other view that um, is prominent is that the sons of God is a reference to angelic beings. Amen. And that either these angelic beings, these fallen angels, are, are taking the form of men, as we see in the Old Testament, uh, angels did do and could do. Uh, at, at least uh, we see the record of... Um, of, of godly angels or angels that uh, were sent by God take doing doing so but either either taking the form of men or more likely that these angels were uh, possessing men and uh, having sexual relations with with women and that that view I I tend to prefer over the various other options that that the text reveals, and and so in that view, we would have the fallen angelic beings working through men, possessing them uh, to fulfill their own lust. Now, there's there's a couple of, of scriptures that uh, lend support to this view. If you just had the the phrase "sons of God," that that doesn't seem to to fit in our thinking because in the New Testament, the idea of being sons of God is, is referring to us. You know, we are, we, by faith in Christ, we've, we've become sons of God. But you see in the Old Testament that same phrase used in Job three different times to refer to angels. Uh, in Job 1 and verse 6, you remember when the, when the stage is set for this Affliction that comes upon Job in this, in, in a sense, a, a, a confrontation with Satan. And it says in verse 6 that now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And, and so we don't have a lot of description about what was happening, but uh, evidently angels or representatives of the angels and also Satan is coming to give an account before God of what they're doing. And we, we see Satan, you know, talking about what he's been doing. God, God uh, uh, speaks to him directly. And, and that happens, that's recorded again in Job a little bit later. And then, uh, then later on in the, in the book of Job, we see a reference again to uh, angels being the sons of God. And evidently that last reference is to the, at the creation. So 
that's, that's a strong reason for taking this phrase to refer to, to uh, not to men, but to angelic beings and their working, their, their, their influence. Uh, another uh, scripture is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And there, I'll just, I won't really try to set the, the stage for the context, but it says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And so whatever these angels did, whatever this is referring to, they were being, they, at least these particular angels were cast into this um, prison or this place where they are kept for a future judgment. Uh, and then there's some other scriptures that also make reference to that. I have uh, Jude here. I want you to see uh, Jude verses uh, 5 and to 7. And this, this passage, uh, we have the uh, Jude writing about God's judgment that's coming upon these false, false teachers, false prophets. And he's making a case that God knows how to judge and, and to keep the righteous for himself. Uh, notice the beginning of verse 5. It says, Now I want you to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And so he's going back to the Old Testament to, to show examples of how God preserved his people and brought judgment to the, the, the ungodly. He continues, uh, verse 6, and, and, angels, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... And many believe that this is referring to this incident in um, Genesis chapter 6, where they left their position of authority. In other words, what God had appointed to them, the, the domain, the, the place that they had, and left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of that great day. So it's talking about the same kind of judgment upon them that they're being kept uh, in this pit, in this place of um, uh, until the a final judgment when the Lord comes back. And notice how he adds to that in verse uh, 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so he compares Sodom, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and their judgment to what these angels did and how they were judged. So as you begin tying some of these verses together, it lends support for this view that uh, angelic beings were... Uh, the ones referred to in uh, verses 1 and 2, the sons of God. And so what we would see then is that what has happened is a, is a corruption of God's design for marriage and sexual relations. Uh, and in fact, marriage and sex had become a demonized pursuit of self-gratification. And so it is, uh, it is part of the of a reason 
why sin had corrupted the earth to the degree that it had is because of um, this activity of the demons. And if you want to, you know, if you look at what's happening in our world today, and especially related to the immorality, can you doubt that demons are involved in what's happening in our world? The promotion and working to pervert uh, the hearts of men and women, and especially in this area of marriage and sexual relations, uh, our, our world is, it seems to be given over to immorality. And, and as you think about it, this, the concept of, of sexual restraint and fidelity has just been totally rejected. And it's the reason being that the world in, in general has rejected God's world, God's word, for their own, uh, their own desires. And it's been thrown off. But you know, it's not just the world uh, that's rejected God's word. Christians, many, many who claim to be Christians have replaced or, or adapted God's word to suit their own desires and, and their own values according to the values of the world. And so what we're seeing is this uh, rejection of, of what God has revealed or, or at least adapting it to say, well, it doesn't really mean that or it meant that then, but it doesn't really mean that now. After all, it's been you know, so long time ago, certainly, you know, it, it doesn't fit what I should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And, and so there is this, this adaptation of God's word, the changing of God's word, the changing of meaning to say, well, it really doesn't mean that. It means something else. And many, even, even those who claim to be believers, have... Um, have adapted God's word to fit their own lustful desires. And so we as genuine believers then are admonished to stand firm, to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against these forces of Satan that we saw in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and that we might, we might trust in him. We'd be able to stand, stand against this tidal wave of, of immorality and sexual perversion that we see today. And if we are going to be able to stand against this corruption, we must be walking with the Lord. We must be in fellowship with Him in daily dependence upon Him. Well, the second main thing I want us to think about this morning is that even in judgment, God's gracious. And I believe we see that in this introductory passage to the judgment that's coming. Uh, notice in verse 3, as he talks about this 120 years, it says in verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. And so there's another question for us as we think about, okay, what, what's the 120 years uh, that he's talking about here of God's uh, biding spirit? Uh, well, there's two main views. One is that he's talking about he, the fact that he's going to shorten man's lifespan to approximately 120 years. And so in this 
interpretation of what he's saying here, there's generally after the flood, we can see a shortening of, of life, of lifespan. Before the flood, there were you know, upwards of 900 plus years in their life. After the flood, that quickly began dropping until you don't really have a record of people living much past, you know, 100, 120, you know, and so there's a drastic drop off. Uh, and so for whatever reasons many believe it's because of the conditions after the flood, its impact upon us, but for whatever reasons, uh, we see this decline and uh, many think that this is what he's referring to here, what God is saying, that he's going to shorten man's life. The, the other view, uh, which I prefer, is that God's going to end man's life after 120 years. And he's going to do that with the flood. And so in this view, uh, he's, he's telling Noah uh, that uh, God, is, God is basically being gracious to them and warning them through Noah for 120 years. Uh, in, in the building of the ark, in Noah's preaching, he's, he's being gracious to the world. Uh, he's warning them. He's giving them time to, to repent. And uh, so there's a couple of supporting verses for this idea in 1 Peter 3.20. We see uh, the statement, because they formerly, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And I wanted to highlight the point there that there's a point made that God was patient and he was waiting. What was he waiting for? Noah to finish? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think if he wanted to, God could have uh, sped the process up. But he intentionally had planned for 120 years before, before he brought destruction. And it's described there as God being patient. Also in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah is referred to as a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness. And so we, we can look back from the record in the New Testament and see what was, a little bit of what was happening during that time. Noah was not only building the ark in obedience, and no doubt people came and said, what are you doing, Noah, and made fun of him and laughed and jeered. You, you can be sure all of that was happening, but Noah was communicating he was preaching the word there is is used for for to, to preach he was he was warning people about god's judgment and admonishing them to repent to turn to god but uh, they were not listening and so we have god announcing to noah that he's going to bring an end to man uh, god's spirit uh, the word spirit there, just like in the New Testament Greek, is, conveys the idea, according to the context of breath, or the spirit in man, or God, God's, the Holy Spirit. The context has to determine what's in view. And so what we have here is the breath, I believe the reference to the breath of life, is going to be taken away. And God is extending this time to an, to an ungodly people 
as Noah proclaims righteousness for 120 years, he's building the ark, and so through his words and through his actions, he, he is extending grace to the world. But we know that they did not listen. They did not believe. Well, another question that we have is here in verse 4, the Nephilim. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's more, more questions than answers for who they, they were and what they're referred to. But if you, let me just read there, um, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. If you notice the way verse 3 is injected into this flow from verse 2 to 4, as it talks about the sons of God, and then it picks up again in verse 4 again, talking about the sons of God and what they did in the Nephilim, it seems very likely that Moses is correcting uh, the mythology and pagan view that there was such a thing as demigods, which, which became a a common view among the, among the pagans that there was such a thing as a part man and a part God. And evidently that was something that Moses is correcting here because the sons of God did not produce a different race of being. Uh, they, they were men, the offspring of this demonized relations um, were just men. They had the breath of life in them that God was getting ready to take away. And he did so in the flood. We, we also, it may be very possible that the people in that day were trying to overcome their mortality. I mean, they lived long lives already, but they may have thought that this, these relations with these men who were under this demon possession may somehow grant them immortality or this godlike status. Uh, we, we know from verse 4 that they were looked up to as men of renown. They were, the, they were the heroes of the day, these mighty, mighty men. And so we, we, we know that this word Nephilim, or at least believed, the Hebrew scholars see it as taken from the Hebrew word to mean to fall. And so they were either meant to, to imply that they were fallen ones, in other words, morally fallen, or it means that they were ones that fell on upon people. And that's probably, in the context, a better option. Uh, and in the Old, Old Testament, this idea to fall upon someone was, was meant that they were attacked or that you were attacking someone to fall upon them. Like in battle, they fell upon their enemy. You know, it's like they were overcome by, by the enemy or, or the, the attackers overcome someone. And so if that's the case, then these mighty men, the men of renown, were a description of violent men who fell upon others. Uh, they, they were men who were regarded as warrior-like champions. And, and it may very well be that they were giant-like in stature as well. At least that was the, 
the perception later uh, with the children of Israel in the wilderness, remember, that was the perception they had of these Canaanites as they went to spy out the land that they were, you know, giants in their sights, and they referred to them as Nephilim. And so this word evidently took on the idea of being a giant. And we know in that day there were men who reached, you know, abnormal stature like Goliath. It's recorded for us in Scripture. And so it's very likely that these were the, the warrior, you know, type. And they were looked up to. And, um, and so that was the scene that we have in that day. Numbers 13.33, we have this exaggerated description of the ten that came back, you remember. They did not believe God, did not trust God, and they're, and they're really given a report as why we can't, we can't obey God. And they say, and all the people that we saw in it are, like, are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. And it's no doubt that they were in that land great warriors, but, but I believe this is a, it's an, it's an exaggeration to, to, to explain why we, they couldn't do something, why they couldn't win. So in, t in the time before the flood then, these heroes were not, uh, the, the hero of the people were not men like Noah. Men that walked in fellowship with God. But the heroes, the men of renown, were, were mighty men of the flesh. They were violent men that took women as their wives as they pleased. And so if God judged this world, this world... Noah lived in, will he not judge ours? Amen. Yes, he, he certainly will. In 2 Peter chapter 3, again, we see a description of the, the time when the Lord re, is going to return. And I believe a, a description of the day in which we live leading up to that return, scoffers. And 2 Peter says that there are scoffers that say when uh, sc will scoff will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? In other words, they're not asking a question. When, when's the Lord coming back? They're laughing at the claim that the Lord's coming back. And, and P Peter's going to argue in that passage that just like God by His Word spoke the world into creation. He spoke judgment upon the world with the flood, and He's going to do so again. And as you come on down to verse uh, 9, it reminds, the text reminds us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he goes on to say, but the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord is speaking of judgment. The day of the Lord's judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. 
And so he's describing this reality that just like in the days of Noah, men will laugh and scoff at the warnings of Scripture and that God is going to judge the world. And even we might be tempted to ask, why does God delay? Why doesn't God you know, judge the wicked? And we, we can look around us and see evil people and we wonder, why doesn't God you know, dispatch with them and deal with them and bring judgment now? But what might seem like delay or slowness, text says, is the grace and patience of God. And just like in the days of Noah in the 120 years, no doubt um, if Noah hadn't been told how long it would be, he would be wondering, Lord, how long will you allow this to go on? And what we in fact see is God's plan being, being worked out according to His schedule, the plan of proclaiming righteousness, warning, and we see this patience of God. We also see the sorrow of God. And this might surprise you. If you have a view of God that, that he, he enjoys bringing judgment upon sinners, and that, that, he, that He can't wait until you know, judgment comes, then, then it's a wrong view of God. Uh, look with me again in Genesis 6, 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. You can't really get much worse than that. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry, sorry that I have made them. This description in verse 5 is that of a, of the, of a people that is totally given over to uh, the, the corrupting power of sin. Every intention and thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. It's, it's kind of like the, you know, in, in the, the movies, a lot of times we'll create a villain, you know, the bad guy. And they make him bad enough that we are, we're just waiting for him to, to get what he deserves, right? And at the end of the movie, you know, he, he finally, you know, gets uh, judgment or he, you know, he, he <clears throat> the, the good people are vindicated or, and in the movie leads us on this path to just say, well, yay, you know, finally victory triumphs over the bad guy, you know. But as God looked upon the wickedness of mankind, He's not vindictive. He's not eager to judge them, but He's sorrowful. He has, he has grief in His heart. And that word there in verse 6 is translated regretted. It's a, it's a word that has a broad meaning in the Old Testament. It's the same word in verse 7 that's translated sorrow. Uh, it's, it's a word of emotion. It, it communicates emotion. It doesn't mean that God changed His mind and if He had it to do over again, He would do it differently. It, it doesn't communicate that. It's, it's communicating what's in God's heart. Uh, he knew what would happen 
but he's not cold and indifferent to what's happening. He, he's grieved in his heart over their sin. It's, it's the kind of emotion that we would have if judgment was coming upon someone that we really loved, that we cared about. We know they're guilty and they deserve it, but we're not happy that judgment has come upon them. We're, we're grieved about the, the, the eternal judgment that's come upon them. This is what God told Ezekiel to say to the people of Israel when they were experiencing God's judgment and they were feeling like, well, you know, we, we have no, we have no um, chance. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11 it says, this is what God says to Ezekiel. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways for why will you die, O house of Israel? And so we see God communicating through his prophet that God is calling them to repentance. He has no pleasure in the fact that their judgment has come upon them. And from God's perspective, when He looks upon the world, He's grieved. But there was one man that was different. This man, Noah. Notice verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This word favor is, is also a word of emotion. In, in contrast to the rest of mankind, when God looked upon Noah, he was pleased. It's not that um, Noah was perfect. Noah was also a sinner. And that's borne out later in, in this record after the flood. Noah, Noah, he's like us. You know, he's flesh. He has his he has his, his his downfalls. He has his sin that he has to deal with. But Noah had responded to the grace of God. He, he was someone who had who was repenting of his sin. He was someone that would have offered sacrifices to God for him and for his family. He's someone. Verse nine is described as walking with God, and that's why God is, was pleased. That's why God. Uh, he, he found favor or grace in the eyes of God. So we must ask ourselves, when the Lord looks upon mankind today and He sees you and He sees me, what does He see? Is He pleased? Because you're daily repenting of your sins and you're, and you're turning from sin, your heart to the Lord, and you're, and you're walking with Him. You're seeking Him and His Word. Or as He looks upon you, is He grieved because He sees someone who's just going their own way, stubborn and rebellious and not willing to submit to God and His Word. And that's the takeaway. We can, we can study this passage and we can answer all the questions and figure it out for ourselves, but, but really we have to think about our own heart. And the people that are around us, how are we to respond to them? How are we to respond to the world and the sin that we see all around us? And that's the important thing for us today, that we align our hearts with the heart of God.
and we think the way he thinks. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your grace. Each of us are deserving of the same judgment that you brought upon the world, the flood and the judgment that you're bringing upon the, the world in the future. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and paid the price that we could be forgiven, that we could have a relationship with you, that we could, like Noah, walk with you in faith and believing Lord, help us in this day. Help us to stand true to your word. Even in the midst of, uh, of the darkness around us. Places at work and at school. And uh, friends around us that are unbelieving. That would lead us astray. Lead us away from you. Uh, that would corrupt our hearts and our minds. I pray, Father, that we would daily turn to you and trust you and your word to strengthen us, enable us to live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.